0: This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College. We are celebrating today's This Day in History because right now, the 103rd edition of the Tour de France is taking place, and there is only one American who has ever won this prestigious
1: bike race. This is his story. For anyone under the age of 40 or for those of you who didn't notice the sport of cycling until Lance Armstrong's miraculous comeback in 1999, it can be difficult to understand and believe how popular American cyclist Greg Lamond was, how significant his Tour de France victories felt, and how deeply he touched lives.
2: backyard was like the Alps. I was wild and into the wild. When I was eight years old, I discovered hiking, fishing, downhill skiing. Coaches said, you know, the best thing for skiing is cycling. I got to get a bike. Cycling was a counterculture sport. I kind of tend to not do what everybody else is doing. My dad bought one, too. So we started riding together. There was magic to riding. Even by the end of August, we did a 100K ride, and my dad and I got to talk, and
1: we were like best friends, like teammates. His early career promised greatness. Here's Greg and his father, Bob. I had a 76 Volkswagen van.
3: We'd leave for the Bay Area or Southern California and race. They were amateur races, but Greg was doing very well.
2: I won 11 races, and I'm, I'm bored. 16, 17 years old, I went to Europe by myself for two months with 75 bucks in my pocket. Everybody had this mentality that Europeans are unbeatable. They're mythical, actually. They're like, they, they're from another planet. I'm thinking, those Tour de France winners have to start somewhere, just like me. Two races in Switzerland, two races in France, I won them. Went to Belgium, won six out of eight. That's when I wrote my four goals out. Oh. This is
3: written in uh, October of 1978, which would have made him 17. Cycling goals. 79, win the Junior World Championship road race, which he did. 1980, win the Olympic road race. Not possible because of the boycott. By age 22, win Pro World Championships road race. Age 25, win the Tour de France
4: and the enormous crowd on Alpe d'Huez now, as still Greg Lavant follows the wheel of his teammate Bernard Hino.
2: There's something magic about the Tour. People talk about the Olympics, it's go, that's nothing compared to the Tour as an event.
4: The two riders who have projected themselves without a shadow of a doubt, as the two greatest riders in this year's Tour de France.
2: It's a Formula One Grand Prix, New York City Marathon, but doing that for 21 days and with Fifteen million people. You've
4: got an American's going to possibly win the yellow jersey for the first time. Paul, this has been a Tour de France in the greatest tradition of the event. Before these days is gone.
1: It was the 1985 Tour de France cycling Super Bowl, where 200 riders covered 2,200 miles in three weeks. That established Greg's legendary career. This incredible story was recently made into a movie for ESPN's 30 for 30 series, called Slaying the Badger.
4: Phil, we have a chance to see perhaps an American winner here in Greg Le Mans. Absolutely, John. And really, for the first time, Greg Le Mans is now ready to win the Tour de France and add a little bit more history to this great sporting event. Of course, his main adversary is his own teammate, Bernard Eno. He's the man that Le Mans may well have to beat to get that final yellow jersey when the race ends in Paris. You've got 22 teams. You've had nine men on the squad. The unique character who wins the Tour de France has just about everything. It's very unlikely to be more than five guys with this unique ability. You've got to be able to climb mountains. You've got to be able to show the descending skills at 100 kilometres an hour. And above all, you've got to ride the individual time trials. We always call it the race of truth. It's you against the watch. And there aren't many riders got all that ability. So what they do is they choose a leader who they think have that ability, put him in as the leader of the team. And then the others are called the kitchen help. We call them domestiques. They'll come round you like a queen bee. Their job is to make sure their leader is in exactly the position when it matters to win the race because they know he can do it and they can't.
1: The story in one paragraph goes like this. Greg's French teammate Bernard Eno, known as the Badger, had won four Tour de France's and nearing the end of his career wanted a fifth to equal the Tour record the young LeMond was stronger.
4: Up front, the argument goes on. Monde rebels against the team's instructions. He angrily attempts to persuade his coach that he should be given the chance to win the tour.
1: But under pressure from his team and coach, he agreed to support Eno rather than take his first victory.
2: Bernard Eno, five tour wins. The American story, of course, another historic one for Greg LeMond from Rochelle County, Nevada. A kiss from his wife,
1: Kathy. In return, Eno promised to help Le Monde win the Tour de France the following year. You know, it's like, oh no, another repeat. But the Badger reneged on his promise.
4: But everybody feels that Eno is hiding something.
1: And repeatedly attacked Le Mans during the race in attempts to win again.
4: Le Monde knows now that he must take on Bernard Eno and match him at his speciality.
1: But he failed.
4: Le Monde has simply proved himself to be just too strong for the Badger.
1: Greg's first Tour de France win was achieved not only without the support of his coach and team, but also in the face of what many fans believe was outright hostility. It was a cowboy win, reckless and individualistic, and raging against the establishment. But it was the right move and a righteous victory. Because the race appeared at length on U.S. televisions, America responded. Here's Greg's father, Bob. We got a telegram from Ronald Reagan, the president, and
3: uh, a letter from him. And Greg was invited to the White House. So it was pretty big in that
1: sense. It was really landmark in the history of the tour, an American winning the tour. Because afterwards, it brought more and more English speakers into the sport of cycling. And Lance Armstrong, you know, well, God bless him. Wouldn't have existed without uh, Greg LeMond because all of a sudden the fact that Greg LeMond won the Tour, the world audience of the Tour changed completely.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story. Our This Day in History series continues. These are American Stories, and what a story, I did not know this story, and this was brought to us by Greg Engler, who is a cyclist himself, or was, a very competitive one, actually I don't think Greg, it wouldn't be competitive in almost anything he does, we have a contest about who he can eat the most cherries, Um, so there's another side of this story, and there's more to it, and as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And it's the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And where we left off, LeMond had won what was called a cowboy victory without his team, without his mentor, but he'd won it, the first American ever to win this coveted award. He made the cover of Sports Illustrated, by the way, for this and was named their Sportsman of the Year, a first also for a cyclist.
1: But what happened next? Let's take a listen. We are choosing to celebrate this day by looking back at the greatest year in the Tour de France's 100-plus year history and the American man that made it so.
4: And now the proudest moment for Greg LeMond. His name in French means the world, and this is the world of Greg LeMond in Paris today, the first American ever to pull on a winner's yellow jersey in the Tour de France.
1: But less than a year after Greg's first Tour de France victory, this happened.
2: There's turkey hunting in the United States, and Turkey. Hunting is a spring season. I just backed into berry bushes. I was sitting there and I wanted to look and see where everybody was, and when I stood up, my brother-in-law happened to be up behind it, so he shot at the first thing that moved, and that was me. The crazy thing, it didn't hurt. I didn't know it, but my uncle said I had a stream of blood from my neck just pulsating out a steady beat. They called a
3: helicopter, and the helicopter pilot ended up taking it to UC Davis Medical Center.
2: you yeah, saved my life. If I would have had to go by ambulance, I'd have been dead. I had pellets, about 50 of them, and probably 20 of them went right through me, and I still have 35 uh, in me, you know, two in my heart, three in my liver. And there's no way they can remove them? No. I have chronic lead poisoning. It bothers me. <laughs> So the more I ride now at this age, the worse I get.
1: Greg took what should have been a career-ending two years off from cycling.
0: Come back and race in the 1989 Tour de France.
1: After two years
2: of absolute hell, I went in the Tour, an underdog, everybody wrote me off. I was racing against a very strong Fignon who won two Tour de France before that.
4: Gregor win the stage, Fignon
2: would win the stage.
4: Gregor take yellow. Fignon would take yellow. It was just, every day was a great story. And um, then we got to about four days to go, and Fignon was now 50 seconds ahead of Greg LeMond.
2: Day before the final race, he tapped me on the shoulders and he, congratulations on your second place. Now, he and I were teammates and the same coach. And the, that coach told us and taught me, the race is never over until the finish line, no matter what. It's never over until the finish line. You never take it for granted. And when he did that, I said, uh-oh, you've lost the race.
4: At the beginning, it's the advantage Fignon. He will start last wearing the leader's yellow jersey. He chases Le Monde along the course two minutes back. He'll know all the way exactly what time Greg Le Monde is doing.
1: probably shouldn't say this. You wrote your story, and you want to turn it in quickly and then get out of there. Back on to the back of the River 10, the
5: Eiffel Tower is now looming large on the right shoulder of
1: Laurent Fignon. So I wrote my story, you know, Laurent Fignon... Withstood, challenge by Greg Lamond. You can almost see the difference in the speed,
4: Phil. It's incredible
1: to watch LeMond here. What do you think of this man has still got pellet in his back from that uh, shooting accident? It was Fignon coming up, Champs-Élysées. Four seconds, nepotism uh, for Laurel Fignon. Everybody's screaming, and you realize at some point before he made the turn, he had lost.
2: 48
1: seconds, filled. this is the most incredible
4: thing I think I've ever seen in my life. 26-57. he goes into soft lane. It was this universal cry of... F- <laughs> the crowd has realized it. Lauren P. has lost the Tour de by eight
5: seconds.
1: He was this great story, dropped in our laps, and all anybody could think of was... I'm not
2: going home. I never knew it would affect him so much. I mean, I've learned stuff since then. In the 20-plus years after that, he'd never gone to the Champs-Élysées. In his mind, he would be walking to get the mail, and he'd count 1,001, 1,002, 1,008 seconds. I lost by eight seconds. I just said, hey, Laurent, you won two, now I've won two, and we can see next year he'll get third. In
1: 1990, Le Monde won his third Tour de France he looked certain to equal the Badgers' record of five wins. But the sport of cycling was about to change dramatically.
6: Lamont, in 30 minutes
7: behind the leaders, he quits the race right there.
1: By
2: 92 is when I really became aware of it. Some of the riders looked like it was just a natural progression or they explained it by weight loss. God, you look back at it and it was all, it was all lies.
1: Here's Greg's teammate, Andy Hampsten.
3: I saw EPO come in. It made phenomenal physiological changes. It could increase blood levels by 20%. I watched individuals and then groups of individuals and entire teams mop the floor with me and everyone else who I knew wasn't doping.
1: Here's Greg on Lance Armstrong.
4: Seven History's almost repeated. Absolutely remarkable, but look at the face on Armstrong there. He's come here on a mission.
2: I bought into the story, too, with Lance coming back. He had seven victories. Floyd Lamentis won one, so there are eight American victories. As
4: Landis gets off his bike like he's about to deliver the newspaper.
2: It's a pretty impressive streak there for the Americans. (laughs) But it wasn't real. That's That's the sad part.
4: His fairy tale
2: just goes on and on. He's got the support of the cancer community, the sponsors, fanatic fans, and I knew it would, could be suicide. Whatever I said, I don't know who I said it to, but I said it's,
8: Illustrated.
2: Uh, it's unbelievable. That's all I said. It's unbelievable, unbelievable.
1: <laughs> Le Mans' most notorious remark was, "If Lance is clean." It is the greatest comeback in the history of sports. If he isn't, it would be the greatest fraud. His funniest, with the drugs they have these days, one could convert a mule into a stallion. Greg LeMond is now the only American winner of the Tour de France. A lot of cyclists and Americans thought Greg LeMond was jealous of Armstrong. We now know better. Armstrong has been stripped of his Tour victories. This has given many all over the world an even deeper appreciation for what the only American winner of the Tour de France accomplished.
0: And great job on that as always, Greg, and obviously this one was personal to you. What did, uh, what did Greg Lamont mean to you as a cyclist?
9: Um, kind of the same thing that Wayne Gretzky did. He just meant um, just a positive image, a family guy. A uh, guy you wanted to be like. I write my signature today because the way Greg wrote it when I was a kid, I just wanted to be him, not just as a cyclist, but what I saw in his face when he was off the um, race course, and he just was a guy that you wanted to be.
0: Well, and, you know, coming around at that time with all the drugging, what a what a conundrum for an athlete. I mean, if everybody's doing it, and, and pretty much it, a new generation came, and it turns out a whole bunch of athletes were doing it. Uh, and he just chose not to. And he, and in the end, he, he lost. And he knew that's why he lost. And yet he couldn't actually tell the world specifically why. And that just had to be torture for the guy.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, have a, I have actually a, a close uh, friend who is probably the top American racer right now, took 10th in the Tour de France twice, Andy Andrew Tulansky. And he, he said, if I was presented with that, he's like, all of my team have discussed it, and we probably would have went along. So for somebody to have that kind of character to just say, forget it, I'm not doing it, I, I can't imagine it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And as always, our This Days in History, brought to you by Hillsdale College. Go to our website, org. Click on the This Day in History segments. I think there are close to a 100 now, and it's everything from sports to business leaders, the Alexander Hamilton We're coming up on the celebration of his anniversary, and what a life. And we have Ron Chernow telling that life story because he wrote the book upon which the play was based and why we now have Hamilton Mania, a terrific read, a hell of a life story. And so is this one, Greg Lamont's What an American Story. And what a story about the very thing that David McCulloch likes to write about all the time, and that's character. And if Greg Lamont had anything aside from talent, it was character. More after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And today, we bring you the story of a master guitarist and instrumentalist. And we love doing music stories here on Our American Stories. They've been some of our favorites. And this particular gentleman is a 15-time Grammy Award nominee. And has sold over 10 million albums. Making him the biggest-selling instrumental rock guitarist of all time. His name, Joe Satriani. Here's Jesse Edwards.
7: What you're hearing is Joe Satriani and perhaps his most famous song from his most popular album from the 1980s called Surfing with the Alien. It's the second studio album by Satriani released October 15th, 1987. The album is one of Satriani's most successful to date and helped establish his reputation as a respected rock guitarist. You might recognize it, you might not. The truth is that Joe Satriani is a guitarist's guitarist, a real virtuoso, a creative genius, whose music inspires musicians and non-musicians alike. You see, Satriani is the world's most commercially successful solo guitar performer with seven gold and platinum discs to his credit and sales in excess of 10 million copies. But where did it all begin? How did this guy become one of the most freakishly talented guitarists of all time? Here's Joe himself describing his early years in Westbury, New York the descendant of Italian immigrants.
8: I grew up on Long Island. Born in 56, so, and youngest kid of uh, five kids. And so uh, through the 60s, as a little kid growing up, I really was exposed to a lot of music that my older siblings were really living through, so... Original rock and roll, Motown, soul music, British Invasion, the beginnings of what became rock music, and my parents were of the jazz age, so there was jazz music in the house all the time, so I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, a sum total of all that. You know, those are my influences.
7: And here's Satriani talking about his first major musical influence as a child, his own mother.
8: My mother plays piano. We grow up sitting at the piano with her and messing around. None of us were really... Good piano players, uh, not cer- certainly not as good as my mom was. So, uh, and everybody except for myself, my brother had forced piano lessons. Uh, one of my sisters uh, wound up being a folk guitarist, and that was the first time I saw a member of the family, you know, as a little kid, perform in front of an audience. And I think that I was attracted to it, and I was frightened at the same time.
7: Here, Satriani tells us about how he learned a lot about live performance by watching his sister.
8: Seeing uh, your sister, you know, in front of a crowd of people playing something that you used to hear her, you know, write in her bedroom. And I got, I understood what that performance anxiety is all about, and the idea of the show that she prepared for it, now she's doing it in front of people. She's sharing innermost thoughts and feelings with a crowd of people. I was just sort of like the whole thing was a beautiful experience for me to watch that happen. And uh, I think all those little things, you know, they uh, y- you may think it's that one night that you know, where you catch the bug, the performance bug, but I think it's a lot of little things. it adds up.:
7: So we've heard that Joe Satriani's first musical influences were his mother and his sister. Now we're going to hear from Joe about his first major musical influence from outside of his own family when he tells us about the first time he heard Jimi Hendrix.
8: The first day I heard Hendrix coming through the radio, I remember it just like it happened a few hours ago. And it just changed my life. It's just I heard this music and the the room was spinning and I asked my older sister, I think it was, what is that? Who is that? And <laughs> I think they thought it was kind of cute that their little brother was just sort of mesmerized by this Hendrix song, you know. But, and then so they said, oh, we have this record, you know, Let's we'll play it for you, you know.
0: Well, she's walking through the with the mind that's
8: and then I just kept listening to it, and it was, you know, it's like, it was like uh, you know, drinking the magic elixir, and it changes your, right. yourself from every little cell on out, so that's what it was. It was Hendrix
7: that influenced Satriani more than anyone else. As you'll hear in this next clip, and perhaps what was the single most pivotal point in his life, Joe Satriani talks about the moment that he heard Jimi Hendrix had died on September 18th, 1970.
8: I was rocked by the death of, of Hendrix. That's really what happened. I was on my way, just having a good time, not really thinking about getting back to playing drums. And uh, that uh, the day uh, that Hendrix died, I was suited up to... Uh, to uh, practice with the football team and I was just about to go on the field and some other teammate came up and said that he heard that some guy named Jimi Hendrix died and he thought I was into this Hendrix guy and I should know about it. And I and I quit the football team right then and there and decided I was going to devote my life to guitar. And went home and announced it to my family <laughs> over dinner. Well, I think they were pretty shocked.
7: Joe Santriani devoting his entire life to the guitar at the age of just 14 Turning that devotion into a successful, lifelong career as one of the most recognized and appreciated guitarists in the world. Packing venues in the States to Japan to South America, Russia, China, Croatia, you name it. Anywhere Satriani goes in the world, people of all ages come out in droves to hear and watch him play. But what did his parents think of this newfound life devotion to playing guitar?
8: You know, my dad was a a really smart guy. They they got him out of school, I think, in 10th grade and sent him to to NYU, so he was a you know sixteen year old in college, and uh, so he was he was an intellectual and and an engineer. But his older brother was a musician his whole life, and they grew up in New York City. Born in uh, nineteen seventeen, went through the worst period you could ever live in New York City. Uh, kids of Italian immigrants going through the depression and the, the wars and everything, and um, so. Uh, my dad always thought, well, you know, he took the intellectual route, but his brother, who, who he loved, was an accordion player, and his whole life had a wonderful life being a professional musician and traveled the world. And so he thought, great, that'll be fine. Of course, my mother was just thinking, oh, my God, he loves Hendrix, and he just <laughs> right. OD'd, you know. I benefited from the fact that it was the end of the 60s that I was the youngest of five kids, and, and my other siblings had put my parents through Everything that you would imagine, kids of the 60s would put. So they were kind of tired. And and so I think uh, the leniency that it was afforded me was because I was the last one. So they thought, oh, why not, whatever.
7: And that's the one and only Joe Satriani in his own words about his early musical influences from his family to devoting his entire life to playing guitar after the death of Jimi Hendrix. We've heard what influenced Satriani, and when we come back, we'll learn just how many modern musicians Joe Satriani has influenced and even taught personally. We'll also dig into his massive music catalog and learn about his music writing process. We bump out with another track from Satriani called Summer Song off his album called The Extremist. On a personal note, I actually named my youngest daughter after this song. We'll be right back with more from Joe Satriani. This is Our American Stories.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we now continue the story of guitar legend Joe Satriani, who was born on this day in history in 1956, and our local guitar hero, the guy who loves to talk about axes, our own correspondent and our executive producer, Jesse Edwards.
7: Thank you, Lee. You're listening to Joe Satriani's track called Satch Boogie. It's the fifth track from the album Surfing with the Alien and is one of Saturani's most famous pieces. The composition was considered the 55th greatest guitar solo of all time by Guitar World magazine readers, and it also appears in the popular video game as the most difficult song to play on Guitar Hero World Tour. In the last segment, we heard from Joe about his early musical education from his mother and his sister, and we also learned that he dedicated his life to playing guitar at the age of 14 when he first heard the news that Jimi Hendrix had died. Here's Joe Satriani talking about his very first guitar.
8: My first guitar was a Hagstrom three, an inexpensive Swedish guitar. And um, my sister Carol had just started teaching art at a local high school. And so she, uh, that night when I came back from practice and said I was going to be a guitar player, she donated her first week's uh, paycheck to purchase this guitar wow. for me. So it was a white guitar with the black uh, uh, pickups pick uh, pick and pickguard, uh, three pickups, and had that crazy vibrato bar. You know, I sold it to one of my students before I left New York, and I wish I would kept it, but, and I, I've never been able to find one.
7: And here's another major influence in Satriani's music career, a music teacher that he experienced that was just a bit overqualified to be teaching in a high school.
8: A guy named Bill Westcott who comes to Carl Place High School This small high school in this small town where I where I attend, and he becomes the head music teacher. Now this guy is cut out to be a concert pianist. He's a very interesting person, and he's got a lot of intensity about him. But he's very open. He's very young at the time. I'm sure he was in his early 20s at the time. I had to take two music courses that were mandatory. What a great period of public education in the United States. You had to take. Yeah. music and art. is great. I really took to it. I liked this guy a lot. We were doubling up on all of our subjects. My senior year in high school, I was taking two of these advanced theory classes, and I wound up with a university education in music by the time I graduated from high school a half year early.
7: Even after an intensive musical education and graduating high school a year early, what does Joe Satriani want to do now?
8: As a young kid out of school, um, I was thinking, no, I, I, I just need to make a a good amount of money every week guaranteed so I can continue to learn because I'm I'm thinking far ahead you know and I really want to learn the secret of music and so this is temporary I'm thinking so I decide I'll just get into a band where I have to play lots of chords and that was these you know they called them what do they call them Uh, they they were called uh, progressive dance bands but it was really disco music so I joined this band Seven-piece band, no keyboard player, so I had to do all the chord work. I hated the suits, I hated where we played. The audiences, I just couldn't, I didn't relate to them at all. And I spent about a year playing with them, and it was my first multi-state tour. But towards the end of the tour, that's when I realized I would never do that ever again.
7: After quitting the disco band, Joe told his dad that he was going to strike out on his own and move to the West Coast. This is when Joe says that his father gave him some extremely valuable advice.
8: He said if it gets tough out there don't think you can come home is is like an option. He said you don't have to you just you just work it out there wherever you are you're home wherever you go that's that's what it's about being a musician and being a uh, an adult you know you don't it, you're not tied to a place anymore and um, it was a great piece of advice to get because it did uh, I sort of give me uh, some sort of emotional license to go out and and travel and and cheaply mind you <laughs> just you know with with, a, with very few uh, dollars to my name uh, I just started to explore the world a little bit with that knowledge that as my dad had told me it's, it's your world so go out and and explore you know and and you've got that thing you can play so make it work wherever you are you know
7: So Satriani moves out west, joins a band, and begins to spin his wheels as he tries to become famous. That's when Joe gets the idea to start his own record company, publishing company, and to cut an entire album on his own, all from a form that he found in a magazine ad to help people with starting their own business.
8: We used to rehearse in this warehouse next to a company called Nolo Press, and they were famous for making books with tear-out sheets to allow you to do anything from start your own business take care of your own taxes, get a divorce, adopt somebody, whatever. They'd step-by-step step show you what to do. You'd fill out the form, tear it out, and bring it down to the courthouse or wherever you had to file it. So on this break, uh, over the Christmas holidays, I decided I was going to start a record company, a publishing company, and I was going to make a record. And then when we came back, I'd present it to the band and say, see, we can do this, you know.
7: And here's Joe Satriani talking about making that first experimental album.
8: It wound up being a very avant-garde sort of sounding record. It was no drums, keyboards, or bass. It was all guitar. It was all a lot of me tapping and scrapping and doing all sorts of funny things with it. And uh, I I printed up on these really big 45 RPM, 12 inches. And um, uh, it it became this this generic-looking Joe Satriani record that uh, you can see on eBay every once in a while. And uh, but that was, you know, that was the beginning of Joe Satriani, the solo artist. Although I was doing it more as a, as self exploration or just sort of a musical, you know, pushing myself into a new universe, sort of a experiment. It really became uh, a, a way that I could see a, a new path for myself.
7: That new path turned out to be a massive success although it would take some time for Joe to realize that people were starting to take notice of his music
8: I didn't really didn't really hit me until I saw a review of it in guitar player magazine and as I was reading it I was actually rehearsing with another band and someone said hey I think your records reviewed here is this you you know so I'm looking at it and there's this little paragraph and I realized they that you know they talking about how weird the record is and who is this Joe Satriani guy, he must be really strange. And I thought, they don't know who I am. They don't know that I'm, you know, practically in the same town. They don't know that I'm the guitar player in the squares that's been playing in a power pop band for the last five years. And that was that one moment where you see, you know, you're at the fork of the road where you go, you keep being your, the, the person you think you are. Or now there's this other version of you, and then I started to realize, that's who I am. And what I've been doing all this other time was trying to, you know, sort of like sign up to be a, a slave of the entertainment industry. Whoa. But the, here was my real path, which was record company president, which, you know, was just a chair in my kitchen, you know. So
7: things were just starting to get extremely interesting for a young Joe Satriani. What does he do next?
8: I had my own publishing company, which you know, no one was sending me any money, but at least I also owned my publishing, and uh, I realized I was producing my own records. And I thought, okay, this is—it's laughable, but it is a reality. So, I immediately made plans to record another record.
7: That next record would be released on October fifteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, by Relativity Records. Surfing with the Alien charted at number 29 on the Billboard 200, proving to be Satriani's third highest charting album in the United States. It remained on the Billboard 200 for 75 weeks, the longest run of any of his releases. Surfing with the Alien was certified gold on February 17, 1989 and platinum on February 3, 1992. Having shipped 1 million copies in the U.S., it was Satriani's first and only album to earn platinum certification. In 1988, Satriani was recruited by Mick Jagger as lead guitarist for his first solo tour. In 1992, he released the album The Extremist, his most critically acclaimed and commercially successful album to date. And in late 1993, Satriani joined Deep Purple as a temporary replacement for departed guitarist Richie Blackmore during the band's Japanese tour. The concerts were a success, and Satriani was asked to join the band permanently, but he declined, having just signed a multi-album solo deal with Sony. Joe Satriani is always learning, but what some don't know is how many guitarists Satriani has actually taught over the years. World-famous guitarists like Steve Vai, Andy Timmons, and even Metallica's Kirk Hammett, just to name a few. Here's Satriani talking about how he teaches his students.
8: Teaching guitar while you're learning how to play guitar, that's an interesting thing. Sometimes uh, with uh, the students uh, like Steve Vai um, or Jeff Tyson, these guys were so good and so quick that sometimes I found myself learning something and about uh, three weeks later turning it over to the student. And especially, you know, when you're dealing with students who are really, really gifted, uh, you got to do the stuff right, you know, because you don't want to mislead them. And you don't want to discourage them, because if you got a good piece of information and you don't deliver it the right way, you might turn them off to it, you
7: know. There's very little debate that Joe Satriani is one of the best guitarists on the planet. And if not him, probably one of his students. Check out any one of Joe Satriani's 16 albums online, or any one of his free instructional videos on YouTube. You won't be disappointed. It's never too late to learn. As we close this segment, enjoy a little of another one of our favorites from Satriani, This one is called Always With Me, Always With You. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: And there you have it, the story of guitar wizard, impresario Joe Satriani. Born this day in history, and I know Joe would hate hearing either of those words. This Day in History brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College. You can visit them at hillsdale.edu. And you can visit us online to hear this story again or to share it with your friends at ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and today we have one of our regular features. Faith, our youngest producer, has been going off to the Villages, Florida, a retirement community with over 150,000 residents, more than 600 halls of golf, over 2,500 clubs, and everyone enjoying themselves seemingly all the time. We've had a number of stories from there, and today is a short conversation, but it touches on a very important topic for this community. Let's take a listen.
10: On a sunny afternoon in the villages, I walked into the American Legion, post 347, just looking to see if I could find someone to talk to. I went up to the front desk and began a conversation with the man that was sitting there. His name was Bob. I started asking him about his life and even a little bit about his childhood. After high school, Bob had planned to go into the Air Force, and he did. He was only in there for about seven months. Due to a back injury, the military decided that they did not want to be responsible for him. What was it like when you found out you couldn't continue in the service?
9: I was going to go over to Scotland for three and a half years. I missed out on that. I was looking forward to going.
10: Do you feel like you went through... I don't know, feelings of loss during that time?
9: Well, I I joined so I could help protect my country. uh, Not that I'd have been out on any front line or anything. I would have had been in an office. (laughs) But... I wish I could have served my term, but I signed up for four years.
10: So you were probably around 18, 19 at that time?
9: 18, yeah, I got out June of 61, found my wife, and three months later got married. And
10: How'd you meet your wife?
9: At a store. I worked in one store, and she worked in the store next to me. We went for, it was in the wintertime, we went shoveling snow, and we went out and got uh, uh, breakfast over at the next, the store next to us and the next thing I know I went back over there and the girl the, her boss come over and started asking questions about me and well, I don't know if I was g- going with anybody and said no and I know what I thought of her so I went back over there and talked to her that night and I didn't pay that much attention I mean I thought she was cute and everything but uh and I think, I think what happened, come, come out of it, it did. Yeah, had three kids together, married 53 years.
10: After moving down to Florida, Bob's wife passed away. When did she pass?
9: September 4th of 15. Well, she had two broken legs and went to the hospital and uh, heart failure. Yep, and she did.
10: What was life like after adjusting back after she had passed?
9: Hard. Don't recommend it for anybody. Not fun. Sitting in the house and it's four walls keep on coming closer and closer to you. Figured there ain't no more life. Ain't got nobody to share it with anymore. Couldn't figure out why I wake up in the morning there to wake up for. And after a few months you got to wake up and figure life can't bone in now.
10: You feel like joining here helped you in moving forward?
9: Yeah, because I work in the kitchen, I work here in the office, and meeting different people and talking with different people. It kept my mind out of the gutter and instead of draining myself on The mishap that I work myself up and think of good things. Because who knows how long I'm going to live. I want to be sad the rest of my life. (laughs) Got to enjoy life. (laughs) And that's what I do.
10: This is unfortunately something a lot of the folks in this area face. And when a person loses a spouse of over 40 years, it's easy to feel like life has lost its meaning. Because for so long, they were there. And it is not uncommon to be overwhelmed by feelings of loneliness. And of course, moving forward and putting yourself out there again is not easy. What was it like going back to dating after 53 years? It was
9: scary. Didn't know how to to act, really. You can remember what you did when you were younger. Is it the same when You're at my age, going out with somebody, and you see what the young kids do and everything, and you know, (laughs) you're not like that,
10: so. What do you feel like the dating culture is like here, or specifically for you?
9: It was good, it was better than I thought it was gonna be, and just, Triggering out if you're going to end up with the right person or not. I just got lucky, and I did. So, yeah, I'm doing all right. Okay, no complaints. Have a lot of friends here, and she's got some friends. and we'll all get together and enjoy each other's company.
10: In our brief 20-minute conversation, Bob shared some of the most important and pivotal moments of his life and how devastating the loss of his spouse was for him i am glad that bob was able to pull through afterwards i asked him if he wanted me to email him the story when it was done but apparently he doesn't have a computer i want to thank him anyway for sharing his time with me this is faith garcia from our american stories reporting to you from the villages florida
0: And thanks, Faith, as always, and thank you, Bob, for sharing that, those lines. The four walls kept coming closer and closer. Couldn't figure out why to get up in the morning, he said, after he lost a bride of that many years. But the villages, the work serving others, it helped him get out there and then back out to the dating world, Bob went. This is Our American Stories, Bob's story at the villages. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and I, I almost want Jesse to continue that dialogue between Ruth and the song. I mean, between Judge Judge Judy and the song.
11: I'm speaking. <laughs> Outrageous. You're a hustler. <laughs> get a life, you know, get a, get a real job.
0: <laughs> and we love talking about Nothing sometimes. And and Jesse, who's our our mastermind behind the board, well, he loves playing with sounds and with just, he loves goofing off at the board. Yeah. And, and uh, well, J- Jesse, what do you got for us right now?
7: Well, this, uh, I had a phone call come in not too long ago, and yeah. this poor sap didn't know that I was answering the phone with a Judge Duty soundboard. So the soundboard is a website that has a bunch of uh, greetings, replies, questions, commands, insults. And this one just happens to be uh, made from, you know, Judge
11: Judy. Do you listen at all?
7: See, I mean, she's, she's really, she's, she's pretty
11: mean. Behave yourself. Yeah.
7: <laughs> right, right. So I answered the phone with this thing, and this poor sap uh, had no <laughs> idea what was going on. And I, I
0: managed to keep him
7: on the line for about four and a half minutes. Well,
0: oh, that's good. Let's take a listen. Here we go. Good afternoon. How you doing? Tell me your name.
5: Yeah, this is uh, um, Alan. I'm calling from um, Savannah, Georgia. How old are you? Um,
11: I'm 50. I'm 56. (laughs) Okay. I want you to speak slowly, speak clearly, so that I can understand you.
5: Um, so you're not understanding me now?
11: Have I been respectful to you?
6: (laughs) Yes. I'm uh... a really
11: smart lady. Get your head together. Get a life, you know. Get a get a real job.
5: Yeah, okay.
12: <laughs> what kind of work do you do?
5: Um.
11: You want to say something?
5: <laughs> um. Well. Um.
11: You were incarcerated for a period of time. Is that right?
5: No, I never am.
11: <laughs> What's wrong with your driving record?
5: I drive are excellent.
11: How many <laughs> speeding violations have you had?
5: Oh well, let me see. Um, <laughs> I can't think of any in the last ten years, five, 10 years. Good.
11: Um, did you see a doctor?
5: Do I see a doctor?
11: <laughs> yes.
5: <laughs> um, I have what to call you know a a yearly um physical and. You know, and, um, but I'm still, um, uh, do I have the right number here? Just, uh, yes! Oh, okay. Okay.
11: What is adult novelty?
5: Um, you see, uh, adult novelty? Yes. Um,. You lose me. I don't think I've ever, ever heard of it, really.
11: Do you have a television set?
5: Yes, I have uh, uh, multiple televisions. Good. Um.
11: When you're here, I ask questions, you answer them. Unless I'm looking at you for an answer, do not speak. Do we understand each other?
5: Okay. Okay. I, smarter I'm than tired. you
11: are. On your best day, you're not as smart as I am on my worst day. You can apologize. How's that? Try for an apology.
5: Okay, I got you. Um, Let's hear it. I mean, whatever I've done wrong, I, I'm, I, I'll, That's I'm always apologetic. Me. It doesn't
11: know. make sense. How much do you earn a year?
5: Well, um, I, I really don't feel. if you're Oh, I don't F believe a F word of that. Really?
11: There is no excuse for that. Okay. Okay. I believe that you are a mother who is pretty desperate. (laughs) You can't dance fast enough for me. Do you understand? Outrageous. Outrageous. You still didn't give me an answer to my question. Um, I'm
5: kind of of confused, really.
11: (laughs) What is adult novelty?
5: I don't know. I'll be frank with you. I don't know. Um,
11: You're a hustler.
5: Um, in, in fact, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of a, a adult novelty.
11: Good for you. How many speeding violations have you had?
5: I've I, I got a seven-year record here, and... Um, there may be one in the last seven years.
11: Where? When?
5: Oh, this is, well, this is, um.
11: Behave oh. yourself.
5: I got the wrong number here. You, you <laughs> this, 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 this is wrong number here, I believe. Okay, I got the wrong number. Thank you.
11: Of course. <laughs> Oh, come man. Man. like come how it by. goes from
7: I have no speeding violations to oh, there might be one or two by the end of the call. <laughs> alright
0: <laughs> How long did that last, Jesse? Four and a half minutes. Four I and a half personal minutes. Vet. Oh, you got to do that again. We got to see if you can top four and a half minutes. Oh. And that brings us to our favorite segment of the week, and we wish they would come more. <laughs> and th- sometimes they come, and sometimes they don't. But boy, when they come, they're great. And this is Jesse World and Jesse's World and it's a report on dogs.
7: An adorable dachshund named Winnie Pooh was left $100,000 when her owner died in 2010. But six years later, after the owner's death... The dog has received diddly. That's why Winnie-Pooh's caretaker filed court papers this week in Manhattan Surrogate's court saying she has a bone to pick with the executor of the estate of the dog's dead owner. The caretaker, Virginia Hanlon, says she has repeatedly requested money from the executor who was supposed to use the $100,000 to set up a trust for Winnie-Pooh that would keep the pooch pampered until she goes to doggy heaven. But Hanlon claims she has so far received less than $10 a year and as a result has spent thousands of dollars of her own money on Winnie-Pooh's care. Winnie-Pooh is six and a half years old and has a life expectancy of 15 years. The will also states that whatever money is left in the trust after Winnie-Pooh dies will go to a local animal medical care center. A group of burglars unwittingly saved a dog's life that was left inside of a hot truck with the windows rolled up in Chicago after they stole a laptop computer from an SUV. The Irish nobleman's pub owners shared the video from surveillance cameras to Facebook, noting how the crew of four men accidentally saved the German shepherd who was left inside the hot SUV. The video first shows the moment when the truck first parks and the driver leaves. A few minutes later, the group of men appear as they're caught on camera walking past the truck. Moments after that, the crew circle back to the truck. The video then shows one man being handed a rock before he throws it at the truck's window to smash it. Seconds later, another man reaches in and snatches a laptop from inside the truck before they both take off running. It's unclear if they saw the dog in the back seat, but breaking the window provided much needed fresh air to the dog. Some hilarious footage was recently captured online of an intelligent pooch holding down the horn to get his master's attention. The scene was filmed by bystanders who tried to communicate with the howling beagle. The people filming the canine could barely contain their laughter. Thankfully, the dog had access to fresh air as the driver's window had been left slightly open. For Our American Stories,
0: I'm Jesse Edwards.
11: (laughs) Outrageous
0: Outrageous And one day we should just do a bunch of Jesse Worlds And then Shower Thoughts for an hour (laughs) Just the best And we'll do that soon This is Lee Habib And this is Our American Stories you got a favorite Judge Judy Send it to us and go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's the best way to communicate with us. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our material, Material, particularly our this days in history, which uh, we have well over 100 now. And if you're on a long drive or you're going somewhere, uh, the mix on this day in history is just terrific. Everything from sports, the Pistol Pete Maravich piece is just wonderful if you love basketball. And the Henry Ford piece, well, we've gotten so many good notices on it and Greg does an outstanding work. Does outstanding work on these pieces. And again, this is uh, Lee Habib. This is our American stories. I don't think I'm finished
11: torturing you yet.
0: <laughs> You're not. <laughs> <laughs> One day, she and I will go at it for four minutes, Jesse. That'd be fun. <laughs> this is our American stories. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org dot to hear all that we do.
11: When? Where? What? I'm listening to one person at a time. That is an untenable situation for somebody to have to live with. I don't know where your head is. This is my house. As long as you live in my house, I own the air. You breathe. You follow my rules. You act respectfully.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about love, death, music, sports, work, and faith. And if you want screaming and shouting or arguing, this is the wrong place to be. It's stories and only stories here on every sphere of American life. And we especially love to hear your stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to write to us with your story, and we'll help you record it. And this next story comes to us from a young lady named Erica Evans who's been sharing her personal journey on a terrific storytelling website that's called thewishdish.com. And Erica graciously recorded one of her stories as she was driving home from work. Let's take a listen to Erica.
12: My name is Erica Evans. I am 22 years old. I have been enrolled in college for the past four years, yet I have the academic standing of a freshman I've made some really bad choices and I love dogs and I have borderline personality disorder. So this last part is something that I only recently found out Um, about two years ago. I was diagnosed with that, but it was something that I had been feeling all of my life. And that might be a really cliche thing to say is that I've been feeling this way all along, but it really, really now looking back seems obvious that I was struggling with this mental disorder all of my life. For those of you that don't know, borderline personality disorder is a really complex and intense combination of, for lack of any medical terms, of bipolar disorder, of clinical depression, of really, really unstable relationships, and intense and irrational emotional responses to things. So it's really just a hurricane of chaos. So it's been really tough, really tough. When So what originally prompted me to go see a psychiatrist and a therapist and a psychologist I had a bad breakup with a boy that I really hadn't even been dating for that long, which was kind of a red flag, but after we broke up, I decided to take a knife to my wrist and cried myself to sleep in my closet night after night, and uh, I actually got the police called on me by family members who I had sent concerning texts to, so... After that, I got diagnosed and with diagnosis, I found a lot of peace and comfort in it because I was able to sit on Google for hours and research all about it and read different blogs of other people having it and chat rooms and things like that, which I actually still do today is sit and read online a lot of stuff. But it also brought so many questions and so many other concerns with it. I was sitting there wondering if this is something that it's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Um, am I going to be able to afford to treat this for the rest of my life? Will I, if I have kids, is it genetic and is this going to get passed on to my children, the poor things? Um, and would I ever find a husband that would want to love me and accept me for all of the bizarre nonsense that I am. It was summertime then and I had been on my antidepressants. It was so not working. I spent that entire summer. I worked full time every day. I'd work all day and then I'd get off of work and I'd immediately go meet up with friends and start drinking. So At the time, I thought that I was living it up. I thought I was living the best life ever. I got dinner with friends every night. I got drunk every night to the point of blacking out, which I thought was some kind of cool college experience that I was having. I started going home with boys, which all of this in my head was like, I must be so cool and popular right now. I'm getting invited to all this stuff. Boys are paying attention to me. This is so kicking. When in reality, I was having reckless, unprotected sex and spending every dime that I had on alcohol, and I finally recognized that I was rapidly approaching rock bottom all over again. So although I might have not been suicidal, I was very clearly trying to cover up all the sadness that I was feeling. So... During all of that, I did stop going to therapy. I personally felt like I was being judged for the actions that I was choosing, which I probably should have been. That maybe would have been some kind of repercussion for all of my poor choices. And once I realized that this was really bad and unhealthy, I started going, seeing my therapist again, started seeing a different psychiatrist that re- evaluated the medications that I was taking, so changed some things around, got added more medications on top of what I was already taking, kind of tweaked around our dosages that I was on. And this is where I have a real problem with the way that mental health is being treated in the U.S. and I'm sure all over the world is that you become this kind of test subject where, okay, if that wasn't working, then let's Change X, Y, and Z and see what happens then. And I think that's because if you do miscalculate something, it's not my life that's totally on the line right here. So things continued to stay the same, really. Nothing changed too much. And I was getting really, really tired of trying to pretend like I was a normal person. I was physically. Exhausted from walking around like I had my together. And so I think what I realized was becoming really therapeutic for me was to sit and journal all of these thoughts and these feelings and just express them to somebody who wasn't a therapist because I felt like that was a judgment zone, even though I was reassured time after time that it wasn't, to really have this totally free place to sit and talk to myself essentially and part of that part of my recovery process as well was recognizing that there were other people out there who felt the same way that I did and maybe that's to say that I felt good knowing that other people were feeling just as badly as I did But I think that that's important and I think that's important for all of us to remember is even if you don't have some very serious mental illness, just knowing that there's other people who are out there struggling just as much as you. And I think that that was really important to my process and I think recognizing my own mental illness, being very open about talking about all of it and sharing all of my deepest, darkest secrets has become really helpful for me and I hope that that helps break the stigma and I hope that other people out there are willing and open to talk about what it is that they're feeling inside and that maybe together we can all heal a little bit each and every day
0: and thank you for that Erica and again that's Erica Evans sharing her personal journey on a terrific storytelling website that's called the wish dish Would a husband love me, she asked. Could I have kids? Could I afford treatment the rest of my life? And that one plea, I'm just tired of trying to pretend I'm a normal person. And for anybody who knows anybody suffering from mental illness, and my goodness, you've got to if you're alive. Uh, Let's prayers are out for all of those folks and hoping they can find the best treatment and love and support around them. And we tell all of these kind of stories opioid addiction suicide eulogies heck we do eulogies here on the show arnold palmer's eulogy just beautiful love death life sports the arts we do it all here this is our american stories erica evans story more after these messages
1: Pack along the dusty Winnemucca road When along came a semi With a high and canvas covered load If you're going to Winnemucca Mack With me you can ride And so I climbed into the cab And then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road With so much dust and sand And I said, listen I've traveled every road in this here land I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, bear, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. This is
0: Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American, American Stories. Everywhere. And that's the great Johnny Cash. Now, we bring you a story about personal growth, redemption, and success from a young anti business hipster who was living in New York City that came to find purpose, meaning, and maturity from giving up the big city life and moving to Des Moines, Iowa. Our American Stories' Jesse Edwards takes us to Des Moines where we hear the story of Zach Mannheimer. In 2007, Zach Mannheimer was a
7: 29-year-old, self-professed, anti-business, flip-flop wearing hipster who directed anti-war plays and anti-war protests in New York City. But Zach was starting to sense that something wasn't quite right.
6: The theater I was producing was pretty uh, politically leftist. And uh, that was great fun, and we were making great strides. But I quickly realized after several years of producing it that we were really preaching to the choir. And that uh, everybody in our audience typically already agreed with our viewpoints well before they even entered the space. I began thinking, you know, what are we actually doing here?
7: Zach had a moment of realization during an anti-war rally in New York when he was shunned by the opposition. Zach soon realized that he had to become friends with and get to know the so-called other side.
6: I remember walking up 6th Avenue and looking up at one of the skyscrapers there and I saw a man probably 20 floors up or something who was just standing there staring out at us looking out his window and he suddenly just uh, closed his curtains and went back to whatever he was doing. And I figured, wow, that that's all that took. That guy has just completely shut out everything we're doing. There's a million people here we're marching to protest this war, and all that guy had to do was close his curtains, and we don't exist. And that, to me, spoke volumes of the fact that protesting and creating pieces of theater that's preaching to the choir or any piece of art, really, is not the way to go. Instead, we had to get to know the other side and actually become friends with them and form relationships with them.
7: Surrounded by people with his own viewpoints, Zach decided to do something about it.
6: I lived in deep in the heart of Brooklyn and certainly I was not surrounded by anybody who had viewpoints other than my own. And so I began to do the search to look for somewhere else to live.
2: Get your motor running, head out on the highway, looking for adventure, and So,
7: Zach hit the road, looking for a new adventure, a new point of view, a new place to call home where he can actually make a difference. So, how did this hipster from New York finally decide on moving to Des Moines, Iowa?
6: I went to some cities like Butte, Montana that were super small, about 30,000 people, but that's probably the smallest I went to. And uh, probably the biggest city I went to was Denver. I was looking for cities that had... A downtown that needed to be revitalized, cities that had an issue with recruiting and retaining young people, uh, a city that had a burgeoning art scene but nothing yet firmly established on a national scale, and uh, a city that just felt right um, in my gut. And uh, Des Moines checked all those boxes.
7: Zach Mannheimer moved to Des Moines from Brooklyn, New York the day after he turned 30 years old. After settling in, he quickly set out to start the Des Moines Social Club, an open and inclusive nonprofit venue for all ages that creates unprecedented community engagement through the arts.
6: Today we work with over a thousand local artists in Central Iowa. We produce over eight hundred different events in every single artistic discipline every year. And we see on average uh, about 20 to 25,000 people a month coming through our doors.
4: Come together, right
7: now. Oh, yeah. Zach created a way through the Des Moines Social Club to not only keep young people in Des Moines, but to attract more young people from across America as well.
6: We work with about 50 local businesses on the retention and recruitment of young people in Central Iowa, essentially. You break it down, many people would, many young people, I should say, would rather take a lower paying job in somewhere like Minneapolis versus a higher paying job in Des Moines simply because they don't believe Des Moines fits their quality of life. And so we don't believe that's true, and we work with lots of companies on recruitment to bolster the economic development of Des Moines by bringing in more young people.
7: So, what's at the heart of the Des Moines Social Club? Zach found a way to bring opposing groups together through the arts.
6: Most importantly, uh, sort of the philosophical heart of what we try to do, and this is the original reason why I left, <clears throat> why I left New York, uh, is how do you build community through the arts? How do you take two different people who would never otherwise socialize together and put them into the same room at the same time? And we achieve that by producing at least two different events every single evening that draw as opposite crowds as possible.
7: Housed in an old fire station, There is a seemingly unlimited amount of activities that the Des Moines Social Club provides with the sole purpose of bringing people together.
6: We have a culinary school uh, in our space, and on any given night, we may do a pasta-making class or a wine class that draws a specific crowd. And on the exact same night, uh, in our basement cabaret stage, we'll have a punk band. And downstairs in the gallery, we'll have a brand-new opening of a show. In the theater, we'll have an experimental play. There's all sorts of different things that we can do, but the goal is how do you cross-generate relationships? How do you build relationships where they would not otherwise happen?
7: And it's not just about bringing opposing social cliques together. They've even had success bringing families and even co-workers together.
6: We've seen parents run into their kids because both of them were attending events on the same night in different spaces of the club. We've seen people, co-workers that work in cubicles next to each other that have never had a meaningful conversation. Suddenly they find themselves down there for different reasons and they end up having a discussion. So the art that we present is the catalyst.
7: But it wasn't all just fun and games. After all, if someone from New York came into your town and tried changing things while asking for money without proof of concept during a major recession... Would you listen to what they had to say?
9: Or this dog made New York City. New York City.
7: Zach faced a lot of pushback at first.
6: It took about three three or four years before the community really accepted me. I mean, you know, I I was this New York Jew that showed up running around town asking everybody for money. I had a bunch of things going against me. I was obviously an outsider. Um, I was... Uh, essentially selling a product that didn't exist and had no model and no basis to test whether it worked or not. And I was doing all of these things in the worst economic downturn of my lifetime.
7: So how did this self-professed anti-capitalist hipster become an upstanding, successful pillar of the community? Zach realized that even in business, there's a need for art, just as art has a need for business.
6: I believe art is in everything and that everybody is an artist and that there is even art in, in business. And my understanding of the business world back then was limited. It was also, I would say, uh, ignorant and immature. Um, I still hold the basic hallmarks that I held then, which is profit is not the bottom line. That is not what we're trying to do here, no matter what we're tra- whatever we're trying to create. I still maintain and believe that we're trying to build community. But the business community is just as big, if not larger, than the artistic community. We can't treat them as outsiders like we did when I was in my protest. Instead, we have to see both sides, and we have to welcome them in.
7: Art and business working hand-in-hand, much like Republicans and Democrats. Although they might not see eye-to-eye, they can create something bigger than themselves by treating each other with respect.
6: On a base level, um, artists have to sell their work, and people have to buy it. And often those are not the people that are their colleagues. That being said, the business community often needs a shot in the arm of of a different viewpoint different way of thinking different perspective that's given by art more than anybody else and so why should we shun them and treat them as outsiders we need to welcome them into our community the goal ultimately in my mind is everybody seeing not not agreeing on every viewpoint just like republicans and democrats but treating each other with
8: respect
7: Zach has some parting advice for people who might be looking for a fresh start or a way to change the world around them for the better.
6: I would say if you live in a large city, get out. Uh, I see absolutely no reason for anybody who is creative or wanting to do something new to be living in a large market. Uh, Chances chances are your idea has already happened, has already been done. Um, There is zero chance of pioneering in any of these places. As an example, I could have opened a social club in New York. Uh, New York certainly didn't need it, which is why I left. But it also, it would have taken me 20 to 30 years and probably $100 million. And why? For what?
7: For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
4: Baby, the truth is out, so don't deny.
0: This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American Stories. That was the story of Zach Mannheimer. The story of a former hipster leftist living in New York who discovered that capitalists aren't always the bad guys. He picked up and moved from the big city to Main Street America to discover himself and America. To hear this story again or to share it with your friends, go to 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 ouramericannetwork.org.